0: Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to this uh, event on uh, the giant of ignorance. Uh, and um, I was going to say on my left are five giants of ignorance, but they are anything but. Um, uh, this is part of uh, Beverage uh, 2.0. Sorry, I, I'm David Pearshoe, and I used to teach in the social policy department here at LSE and uh, I have on my left from nearer me uh, Anne West, Kitty Stewart uh, Sandra McNally Nick Barr and Howard Blinister uh, uh, who won't be speaking in that order but um, uh, they will all be speaking um, this is part of beverage 2.0 which um, uh, uh, it could mean many things um, uh, beverage uh, um, in some ways uh, is, is, a, is a man of uh, uh, two parts. Uh, uh, Ralph Darendorf, in his history of LSE, said it's no exaggeration to say that William Beveridge has two extraordinary achievements to his credit. One is the plan, that is the principle of universal benefits as statutory backed rights backed by universal contributions. This is not only one of the central ideas of the century, but also the basis of the social democratic consensus which gradually emerged in the developed world after the Second World War. Um, That was Starendorf's assessment, uh, William Beveridge's own, own assessment, uh, as reported by Harold Wilson, was, I quote, from now on, beverage is not the name of a man, it is the name of a way of life, not only for Britain, but for the whole civilised world. This is the greatest advance in our history, there can be no turning back. Um, modest he was not. Um, the other beverage achievement, however, is LSE. Uh, that's the firm and lasting establishment of a school of the social sciences which, in teaching and research, has become a world centre. Darendorf continued. Um, so, so there's two big achievements to Darendorf um, in the Beveridge Plan, um, uh, uh, social insurance and allied services. Uh, there's only about one sentence about education, but uh, maybe his achievements uh, uh, building up LSE. Um, uh, qualify him on the educational front. Um, his personality too also can, can be divided into two uh, parts um, uh Darendorf said that uh, much, perhaps too much, is made of his flawed personality uh, Beveridge was outwardly opinionated and extrovert, inwardly troubled by doubt and self reproach, uh, in the words of uh, Josie Harris in a very excellent uh, biography of her Um, Going back to Harold Wilson, who worked as research assistant um, to him um, before the war, he wrote, "...I found him a devil to work for. All our research work was done in an uncomfortable room we shared above the barn. Early rising was not for, for me, but a beverage after a swim in the coldest water I've ever known kindly awakened me each morning at seven with a cup of tea." After dressing without a swim, I put in a stint of two hours' work with him before breakfast. So he was certainly a hard uh, taskmaster. Um, Harris also makes the point that Beveridge was much better at thinking up schemes than implementing them. Um, uh, But uh, there's a Churchillian uh, uh, aspect to his life that uh, during the war he was elected unopposed um, as a liberal MP for Berwick-on-Tweed in 1944, Uh, but then uh, in 1945, despite being one of the most popular men in the country, he lost the seat, Um, and uh, Darendorf concludes that uh, he died a bitter and lonely old man. So that's um, two two facets of uh, his achievement and two facets of his personality, but uh, we're not here to talk about beverage, we're here to talk about ignorance and uh, uh, overcoming ignorance, and the first speaker is uh, from the Department of Social Policy, Kitty Stewart, Associate Director of the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion, um, who has pushed forward the study of uh, childcare, its relation to education, and much else. Kitty, do you want... Thank
1: you Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to talk about the early years, what role they have to play in uh, tackling the giant of ignorance. And I'm going to make the case that we need to pay much more attention to the early years, certainly than Beveridge uh, ever did. Um, but also than we are at the moment, I think now we, we have a lot of rhetoric about the importance of the early years, and we don 't actually uh, have the action to back it up. So, why is early education um, for young children under five so important here 's a summary in a, a nice picture by Heckman and La Fontaine, who summarize in this uh, stylized way the evidence on what we know about interventions. Uh, for children of different ages and the impact that they have, the returns on those investments uh, if we're talking about increasing human capital. Uh, And you can see that their interpretation of the evidence is that if you want to have bang for your buck in terms of investing in human capital... you should invest in the early years. So you get much more, much more back from programs targeted at, at young children than you do at later school ages. And by the time you get to job training and, and post-higher uh, education, uh, you're getting much less investment, less return on your investment. Um, so why is that? Well, neuroscientists have helped us think about the reasons for that. And so this uh, picture summarises some of the things that are going on in children's brains as they develop. Um, and the reason that those, young, those early years are so important is because children's brains, uh, babies and children's brains are actually being uh, developed. They're, they're still plastic, and they're make, different connections are being made. Uh, so you can see before birth, and in that first year, those are months to begin with. Um, this is when everything's happening in terms of sensory pathways, Uh, Language development, also really a lot of that happening, the kind of connections being made in the brain to enable language development in the first year. Higher cognitive function coming a bit later, but still you can see that the most important period is the under fives. So this is when things are really developing, and the sorts of stimulation and the sorts of things that children are exposed to in the world around them and in terms of their interactions with adults and other children are really crucial in in this first uh, period. Now, we know as we're higher education, uh, we work in higher education, we we're working with those over-18s over here, and we know that you can still learn stuff then, and you're, you can still, you're still developing, and uh, there is an impact of higher education down there, but it's nothing compared to what's going on. You know, the job that we're doing compared to the job that people are working in nurseries uh, with young children, uh, the impact is really taking place much earlier on. Um... Now what this means, what does this mean in terms of what young children need and what they should be doing in nursery and early education? So it's not about learning things, it's not about learning to read really early, learning your times tables, it's not that you have to learn your alphabet when you're two or three. What's much more important is uh, play-based learning that helps to uh, develop a sense of curiosity in children about the world and their their century development. Um, It's about interaction with other children group play uh, working in in groups learning to socialize to empathize to see other perspectives to take turns um and it's also about learning developing really importantly a sense of self-confidence self-efficacy and self-belief which really comes from the sorts of tasks that children are given and the interactions that they have with adults that help to, to move them on uh, and give them confidence in themselves um, now, why do they have to go to early education or to a childcare setting to, to get some of this stuff? Why, can't, why aren't parents just doing this at home? Why isn't, isn't this a parent's responsibility? Well, there are several reasons why early education settings are really important. The first is, as I've said, some of this is about, about interacting in groups. Uh, and so some of this you can't get at home, especially as families are getting smaller and we're getting much more protective about children going out to play, it's in an early education environment that they're going to learn some of that stuff. Um, the second thing is that not all parents, and this is true right across the income distribution, are really skilled and patient enough to do the sorts of, of work and, and playing with young children. Not all parents uh, are happy to spend hours and hours you know, blowing bubbles and, and uh, doing this kind of thing. Now... Children from high, in higher-income families, if parents don't want to do that sort of thing themselves, they're hiring nannies to do that sort of playing and, and stimulating with their children. Uh, not all families can afford to do that. Um, and so these settings, not only do they help child development, but they can also contribute to narrowing inequalities between children from different backgrounds. I need to speed up. The third reason... That we need to think about this is because in practice increasingly as mothers are going out to work children are in group settings they're in childcare. care um, and instead of giving you an, a picture of showing you maternal employment growing across all industrialized countries which you may know about I just like this nice picture from an Italian MEP who takes her young baby to work and you can see the socialising going on as the child learns from her mother. Uh, not all of us, not everybody is able to do that and take their child to work. So people, children are in early education, it really matters what's happening there. Now, as I said, this can play an equalising role as well as helping child development. In practice, when we look at what's happening, actually early education is, uh, tends to be playing a disequalising role because Um, Often it's children from higher income backgrounds who've already got various advantages who are benefiting from uh, early education. So this shows you gaps by quintiles. This is the richest 20% in the U.S. of three-year-olds. Fairly low numbers of children, three-year-olds going in the U.S., so 60% in the higher income group, much (coughs) higher than... uh, in the middle and, and lower income quintiles. The US is a bit of an extreme example. Across European countries, we, ha- we have much higher rates of enrollment because we have a universal approach to early education, and that seems to be more effective. But even where it's universal, it ten- there tends to be uh, socioeconomic gradients. In the US, they have a very targeted approach, and you can see that that's working in terms of getting narrowing gaps at the bottom, but you still only got 20% of children from those lower groups uh, going to early education. And what I haven't showed you here is also then the quality is very varied across uh, different groups, so more likely that the higher income children are getting the better quality and quality really matters. Why is this and what do we need to do? Well, this shows us um, the problem, really, is that although we're talking more and more about early education, we're not putting the resources that we need to into it. So this is for England, and this shows you, per pupil, uh, how much is being spent on children from different different levels of education. So early years is this green line here. There was an increase under the Labour government. It almost doubled. But it's still £2,000 per child who's in education at this age, three and four years old far less than at at, uh, primary and secondary level and uh, much less than at higher education. Um, So, you know, we, we talk big, but we actually don't put the money in. Beyond that, we actually, in the English context certainly, uh, and this is true in some other countries also affected by austerity where cuts have been taking place, it's been services for young children, including early education and childcare, that have taken the, the, the hit in terms of the squeeze, the cuts. Uh, so this, oops, sorry, this figure, uh, this shows you benefit levels, so you don't need to worry about those, but this dotted line shows you services, including early education, childcare, and Sure Start uh, children's centres, which provide services for all children under four, whether or not their parents are are working. You can go there. There's play groups, toddler groups, support for parenting. So that's another really important part of the package, especially uh, if you're not reaching all children in terms of early education. Uh, What do we see? Big increases in the amount being spent per child right up until the financial crisis or until 2010, and then we've seen that these uh, services have been hit really hard and it's SureStart uh, uh, more than anything that's taken the hit. So sure start was providing quite a nice model for other countries in terms of what you could provide beyond formal childcare in terms of further support for young children, and that's really been squeezed. So what do we need to do? More investment in uh, high-quality early education, accessible to all... Um, and that includes really focusing on quality provision. It also includes having a broader model which makes sure that all children from zero up have the opportunity to play and learn uh, together, whether it's in childcare or not. And this isn't about formal. It's not about learning your ABC. So what we don't want to see is shifts to much more formal learning. It's about play-based play learning, which sets children up for the next stages of their education. Thank, Thank you, you very much indeed.
0: We're having very short presentations, so there'll be plenty of time to uh, ask questions uh, so people can come back uh, on the speakers uh, later. Um, Sorry, the second speaker is uh, Anne West, uh, who's going to be talking about the future of uh, um, schools and uh, their uh, organization, and I will not take more of your time. Last week at a, at a seminar, I'm, I'm taking more of your time, uh, a session was chaired by the director who said none of the speakers needed any introduction and then proceeded to introduce them all. Uh, I won't do that.
2: Okay, well, presentation of a rather different type. Um, in this paper, written with David Wolf QC, is with us, um, I'm going to give a brief overview of the school system in England in historical context before talking about the development of academies. I'll then outline some proposals we're considering to address some of the issues raised by the current system, or should I say systems. Following the 1944 Education Act, a national system of primary and secondary education comprising maintained schools was established. Schools were under the overall control of local education authorities, and the local authority was responsible for the provision and funding of schools. Many changes to the system took place over the following decades, including the emergence of a variety of types of maintained schools, community schools, voluntary aided schools, voluntary controlled schools, and so on. However, in the early 2000s, significant changes to the state-funded school system were made with the introduction of academies. Academies are not part of or maintained by local authorities. They are funded directly by the government by means of a contract known as a funding agreement and are principally subject to contract law rather than education law. They are owned and run by private not for profit trusts and are bound by the funding agreement. They register as companies with Companies House and are subject to company law. The original sponsored academies introduced by the Labour government were designed to replace failing schools for the most part. However, following the 2010 Academies Act, high-performing maintained schools were able to apply to convert to become academies. And it was a decision made by the Department of Education as to whether or not that was permitted. New academies have also been established under the label of free schools, the situation is that now over two thirds of secondary schools are academies. Fewer primary schools are academies. Although there are standalone academies, many academies are part of a larger chain or a group of academies called a multi academy trust or MAT. With an MAT, it is the MAT overall that is the legal entity and which contracts with the Secretary of State for Education. So there's a mixed economy of state-funded schools, maintained schools that are publicly owned, academies that are stand-alone, private, for not, private, not-for-profit entities, and academies that are part of change, but they're not legal entities in themselves. Now, different sets of rules apply to schools in these different categories. Now, the question is, well, does this matter? And we argue that it does. One of the original aims of allowing schools to convert to academy status was that academies would have more autonomy than other schools. They ostensibly have a number of freedoms. And I'm going to talk very briefly about two of these the curriculum and governance. However, in overall terms, what it's important to stress is that schools within MATs now find themselves, somewhat ironically, in a position similar to that which prevailed with maintained schools before 1988, when legislation introduced local management of schools and devolved budgets. So, first of all, curriculum. Unlike maintained schools, academies do not have to follow the national curriculum. Instead, they're required to offer a balanced and broadly based curriculum, including English, maths, science and religious education. Now, standalone academy trusts have autonomy over the curriculum within these parameters. However, academies that are part of a chain, an MAT, do not have autonomy because it's the MAT that is the legal entity, not the individual school. So, in short, academy schools that are part of a chain generally have less autonomy than other academies, and indeed, local authority maintained schools. So, turning to governance. Academy trusts have autonomy as regards their trustees and governance arrangements. However, there's no requirement for an academy that is part of a chain to have its own governing body. As noted, schools within the multi-academy trust have no separate legal identity and any school governing body which the MAT puts in place only acts within, with those powers delegated to it by the MAT trustees. Now, this is in very marked contrast to maintained schools, where the composition of the school's governing body is set by statute, and minutes of meetings of the governing body are open to public scrutiny. (coughs) Now, the accounts of the Academy Trust must, must be audited by external auditors, because remember, academies are subject to company law. But the accounts do not provide a detailed account of how the public money is being spent. And this is in contrast to maintain schools, local authority schools. Moreover, there's no transparency regarding the decision-making of academy trusts. So, for example, regarding the curriculum, staffing, expenditure and procurement. And there have been a number of cases of money having been siphoned off by academy trustees and even criminal pr- prosecutions. Head teachers who had been able in- to enter into contract for services and so on when the school was a maintained school have been surprised to realise that as headteachers of schools within an MAT they can only do what the MAT allows since it is the multi-academy trust which is the purchasing body not their schools. This brings us on to one further point namely schools no one wants or snows. In 2017 two chains divested themselves of their schools In both cases, the decision was taken following concerns raised about the school's educational standards and improvements that were needed. These decisions leave individual schools that are part of the chain in a precarious position as the Department for Education has to what's called broker the school into another chain. Schools do not have the option to return to local authority control. There's currently no legal mechanism for this. And Indeed, in the case of a school in an MAT, the school has no separate identity in any case. It's worth noting that one MAT divested itself of its schools um, and prior to um, divesting itself of its schools was reported to have transferred millions of pounds of its school's reserves to its own centralised accounts before announcing that it was relinquishing control of the school's. Now, given these concerns, what could government do? Now, we're developing proposals to address some of the concerns regarding transparency, governance, financing and control. Our proposals are, we believe, timely and pragmatic. At the minimum level, there is a need for more transparency regarding the governance of academy trusts. The government could consider imposing rules, such as making it obligatory for the Trust to publish its policy for pupils with special educational needs. Information about the expenditure of individual academies could be required in the same format as for maintained schools. To address the lack of autonomy of academies that are part of chains, the government could reinstate the legal identity of the school so that the school, not the chain, is a legal entity and has the same degree of autonomy as a standalone academy, and this would need to be done via primary legislation. It would open up a number of options to reinstate the autonomy of individual schools. Finally, the government could allow an academy, newly reinstated as a separate legal entity, if it so wishes, to revert back to local authority control as a maintained school. This would require a legal framework enabling such a transition. Such a framework could also mean that if a chain chooses to divest itself of its schools, the school can return to local authority control in a timely fashion. This reversibility option would also mean that if a chain is deemed to be failing, individual schools could be returned to the local authority. And again, we think that these changes would be a pragmatic way to deal with schools that no one wants or academy chains that are failing to provide an adequate quality of education. Now obviously this would throw up a range of issues to be considered, such as the continuing role of the MAT (laughs) organisation, and whether the arrangements between maintained schools and academies of different types and with different contracts should be standardised. Thank
0: you. Thank you you very much. You thought snows and skeletons were just the Winter Olympics. They're not. Um, (laughs) The third speaker we welcome is Sandra McNally, who's Director of the Centre for Vocational Educational Research Director of the Education and Skills Programme in uh, the Centre for Economic Performance at LSE. Thank you. Right.
3: Okay, well, um, I'm making the case here for um, vocational education um, because uh, Kitty there has been giving it for early years and and Anne's been talking about schools, and my job is to say, well, really, we should be considering. Vocational and technical education as, as a priority, and um, but to start with, just to remind everybody on the uh, low productivity in relative terms in the UK and the, uh, the what happened since two thousand and ten that productivity in, in the UK fell relative to other countries and hasn 't really recovered for lots of reasons but we have had two LSE commission reports an industrial strategy from the government, and skills are certainly trying to skill the workforce is certainly part of the solution to this, and People look investigating the long-term difference between Britain and other countries like Germany and France, and um, do put it down and attribute it in part to um, skills. So it, you know it's uh, really important that, that we do something about this, but it should, of course uh, has relevance to all of the areas of education we're going to talk we're talking about this evening) <coughs> Um, but you know, particular problems. What are the particular problems in in this country? Well, it's not necessarily that we don't have enough higher education graduates. We have we have plenty. We ha- we could have more. It's it's great. Higher education is a great aspect of education in this country. Um, but a really big problem is we have a long tail at the other end. So a lot of people who have very low level skills, you know, are are barely literate and numerous, Have really astonishing. Uh, lack of literacy and numeracy, really appalling levels. And and, um, that's a historic problem. Um, It hasn't improved for younger generations, which is unlike um, other European countries. Um, This is um, coming from the OECD-PIAC study, and we're talking about a fifth of the population who have levels of literacy and numeracy that are uh, below the level, for example, you, you'd have difficulty understanding the instructions of a packet of, pack of, of medicine, so that, that level, so it's really bad. Um, and another problem is, in this country, depending on which data set you look at, but I'd say it's not being very controversial to say that there's a relatively strong relationship between the education and skills of young people and their parents here than there is in other countries so an aspect of um, social immobility so why do we care about further and technical education in that context well for a start over half of people leaving school undertakes some form of technical further education. So over 50% of uh, people leaving school, and not people, probably most people sitting here, you're in the university, probably <coughs> many people here went to university or are at university, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't. And it's, it's amazing to think how little time we spend talking about further education considering how many people actually go through it. So FE colleges... Um, uh, private providers, adult learning, all of those things. Um, and in contrast, um, now the higher education participation rate isn't really a percentage of a cohort going to university. It's quite a confusing thing. But when we look at data and we track p- individuals and we see who goes to university, how many people actually go to university from a particular cohort of people, say people leaving who left school in 2010, we find by you know, the age of 30... Um, uh, only um, or le- le- less than that um, only about forty percent or even less than that of of a, of a typical cohort actually go to university so that 's most people have something lower than university education, so obsessing about higher education all the time is not the way to to solve the skills issue in britain and it 's not really addressing the shortage of mid level technical skills that we really have, so we have too many people at the bottom, and we need more people to be more highly educated than that. Not necessarily all of them going to university, but we need to have people in the middle of the distribution as well. So we can't solve the skills problem if we only care about (coughs) pre-16 education or if we only care about A-levels in university. So Kitty made the point very strongly about early years education, and nobody working in this area thinks that, disagrees that early years education isn't important, is clearly really important, and, and Heckman is, and others have made such a strong case for why investment in early years does pay off. But he also makes the case that skills beget skills. So, in other words, one of the points of having a good early years education is that people are able to take the advantages on offer later on. You have to have things on offer for people later on if that's going to happen. So you actually do, you do have to care beyond school um, into the post-16 six, uh, system and into the adult, uh, for adult skills too, because you know life doesn't stop at you know 5 or 16 or 18. You know, We're we all working for a very long time, so it's important that... And the labour market's changing all the time, so there has to be a um, good institutional structure so that people can really access the education and skills they need um, at, at different times in their life. Uh, and he also makes the point that um, non-cognitive skills are really important um, too uh, in the labour market in particular. By that I mean the ability to communicate uh, social skills, teamwork. And these are things that don't, or, or young young learners don't necessarily have um, an advantage for. What I mean is that if you don't learn it by age 10 or age 16, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that you can't, and a programme can't be very effective for you um, post-16. Um, it's not like learning... Um, Learning your um, maths or your language, where there 's huge advantages of being being really well equipped in those things when you're, when you 're young um, um, and so we can't, and we can 't tackle social mobility if we overlook those who take further in technical education because most people who are disadvantaged by however economically disadvantaged however you want to measure that do do some further in technical education and tweaking universities <coughs> so that they have wider participation and a few more disadvantaged people go to universities is not going to resolve the issue. Um, So what are the problems with technical and further education? For a start, structural and funding I would say. First of all on the structural, there's Huge lack of clarity. Um, people know what they're doing when they do their GCSEs. They get good A. They know that A levels. You do A levels and then you go to university, and it's all very nice and sequential, and it's fine. Um, and it's a, there's a clear there's a clear sense of where you're going and where it's going to lead. If you finish school at age 16 and you don't do well enough to do A-levels or you don't want to do A-levels because you're not you don't really want to do that sort of academic um, education. There is a certain lack of clarity in England about how exactly what exactly you're supposed to do and how you navigate the system Um, and the government's Trying to, trying to um, reform this system now into something like T-levels at least is trying to resolve that issue so that you have an A-level route, you've got 15 T-level routes, and you, know, you end up with something that hopefully leads somewhere else. Because another problem, apart from all of these different qualifications and all of these different awarding bodies, um, is that you don't always know progression routes. So if you do something called a level two qualification, which many people do vocational qualification, if they don't GCSEs, it doesn't automatically follow that you progress to level three and there isn't always a natural pathway to progress from level two to level three. So these are problems that are very English problems that aren't necessarily true elsewhere. So that's something that needs to be dealt with. It's been recognised as an issue for a long time, um, but it seems to be very, very difficult to try to really change it. Another problem I would say, in my, my opinion anyway, at least in England, is that there is a very high degree of specialisation after sixteen. So you either do very narrow ca- curriculum that's academic, um, you give up your maths and you, you give up your maths no matter how badly you did GCSE, as long as you get a grade C. Um, and then you do a very or else you do a very specialist vocational education. And I think there is not enough flexibility there for people to to do something a bit more general. Um, uh, at least with, with academic education, if you, if you can get into academic education, there are lots of things you can do after a degree in any subject. If you do a vocational course, um, your flexibility is much less. It, it's not... It, the degree of specialisation isn't as an extreme in, in, in all other countries, so I, I think that's an issue. Yeah. Okay, okay, I'll finish. Okay, so for funding... Um, funding, I was showing the same graph as Kitty, but I just wanted to point out that further education is a big loser compared to higher education. They only get about half as much per per student. Now, of course, the problem with looking at spending is that uh, education costs are very different uh, depending on which stage of the life cycle you're at. So we shouldn't only think about the return on investment but how much education costs. I'll stop there because I've gone over time.
0: Okay. Okay, thank (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. The next speaker is... uh, Howard Glenister, who um, always makes me think of... I think it was Chowett at Oxford who said he, he is the master of the college, what he doesn't know isn't knowledge, um, but he knows everything. Um, and he's written over
4: 20 books. He's still on them, and so he would make it over it. Thank you very much, David. Um, I do so agree with so much that has just said, and I'll be coming back to that. <laughs> Uh, But perhaps I should begin with a little bit of history. Uh, When I began teaching at the LSE an awful long time ago, in the late 1960s indeed, we had a Labour government in office that had begun with a very ambitious programme for education, improving primary school standards, ending the 11-plus, and expanding higher education. Implementing the Robbins Committee report, which had come out in 1963, uh, and when it left office, I was asked by Peter Townsend, who was a, at the time and still is well-known campaigner for poverty reduction, at that point uh, chairman of the Child Poverty Action Group. Uh, He wanted me to do a retrospective look at the achievements of that Labour government uh, for the Fabian Society. So you can see it was a terribly LSE kind of thing, assessment uh, contract, if you like. Um, And when I came to look at it in detail, look at that government's spending decisions, it became very clear to me why that government's progress on its schools policy had been so disappointing. The cost of the higher education commitments had simply swallowed up most of the extra spending that had been allocated to education at the beginning. Moreover, the benefits of that spending had gone overwhelmingly to children from the highest social classes. They had gained... 17 times as much from the government's additional education spending compared to the children of unskilled workers. That is an extraordinary achievement for a Labour government. Later on, we did some more work on this and found over a lifetime that those in the richest income decile had received four... and were receiving four times as much over their lifetime in state education spending as children from the poorest tenth. University spending uh, and universities were, as it were, the major culprits. So it was evidence like that that drove me to advocate what at the time I called a graduate tax. Graduates, I argued, should share the costs of their university education in proportion to their future earnings, not pay the lot, Share There was a public benefit to be gained from university education... ...and it shouldn't be all considered to be a private gain... ...but it was shared between the private individual... ...and the public well, well-being, if you like... ...and so should the costs. Now, in a rather different form to that, and for very good reason... nearly 40 years later, it was to happen. Partly as a result, I would argue the Blair-Brown government was able to expand higher education, at least in England, and extend preschool education and substantially improve standards in state schools. Now, my real fear, and we were asked to specify what our pessimistic views of the future are, and this is my pessimistic fear, is that what will be repeated if, for example, there was another Labour government is the 1960s story and not the 2000 to 2010 story. Health and social care spending, are going to dominate any government spending agenda, as I've argued at some length in my book on the cost of welfare. Now, if that's true, it's going to be a, a stern fight for any of the things the previous speakers have been talking about. The bigger your higher education commitments, the less anything that Kitty or Anne want to do will happen. And that's true in Spain for further education, I believe. So uh, the people who will suffer from that, uh, that set of priorities will be the poorest children in the country. And, of course, you could. There's another pessimistic view, which is that the present lot will go on forever doing what they're doing. But, I mean, in a sense, even more pessimistic is that the other lot will do even worse because they've got their priorities completely wrong. Now, that's my pessimistic scenario. Is there an optimistic one? Well, I think there could be paradoxically, the dreadful mess that the coalition government made of university funding in 2012 might actually be turned to good effect. By the way, never underestimate politicians' capacity to take any good idea you might have and make a complete mess of it. Uh, Now, given the mess which is well analysed in the House of Commons Treasury Select Committee report this week. It's a very good read, if you like technical stuff, Um, but it is actually extremely effectively done. They point out the major mistakes that that 2012 change made. Uh, And what we do now have a chance of doing is, I think, rethinking the whole funding of post-school education. In that sense, the government have got something right. They've asked the right question of the group that has just been set up, not just thinking about university funding, but the funding of the whole of post-school education. My own view is that we should move towards creating a lifetime entitlement to a minimum standard of post-school education and training. On reaching 18, all young people should be given a kind of lifetime bank account that can be drawn down to pay for their future education and training, including helping the employer with some of the costs, and maybe other ways of funding that. Uh, Of course government would have to define the kind of courses, they need huge simplification, Sandra's absolutely right about the mess that the structure is in that nobody can understand or knows the value of the things they're taking Uh, but the principle is I think right and it would be a kind of universalist equivalent of the beverage report universal access to an equivalent sum of money uh, that all post-school 18, post-18 people should have access to Now, such an endowment fund would never, I think, be large enough to pay for, or should never be large enough, to pay for a fully free university education of the present kind. Other educational priorities that three speakers before me have made so effectively should come first. But at least graduates would be able to call upon an equivalent set of funding for post-school education, which would... Effectively reflect the public gain uh, that's involved in university education. How would all of that be paid for? Well, if we were to increase the scale of taxation that's levied on wealth, on inheritances, at the same scale as the Attlee government did in 1948, that, on my calculations, would meet the cost. So there is a potential positive way forward, but it does mean thinking in a quite different way about post-school education. And now I think Nick's going to develop some of that.
0: One thing I I will mention now, because uh, I don't want to forget it later, is that um, uh, the copies of uh, Howard's um, book, Understanding the Cost of Welfare, the third edition, uh, will be available in the foyer outside the theatre, And because he's a very kind fellow, he could sign a copy and uh, then it would be priceless. Um, uh, Nick Barr is Professor of Public Economics at LSE and uh, through his books, articles and advice has probably had more influence than uh, any other individual on uh, pensions policy and uh, most especially higher education finance around the world, but um, I'm aware that uh, one summit of his achievement was that he walked all the way to Everest Base Camp, which is uh, a remarkable achievement. Um, uh, So welcome, Nick.
5: Well, thank you, David. Good evening, everybody. I think I'm the sweeper here. Um, A little bit on problems, mostly solutions. Major problems Higher and further education are largely separate, higher education finance continues to be obsessed with three-year full-time degrees, there's a huge funding imbalance between uh, university education and the rest of tertiary education, and money that is spent on higher education is badly targeted. So we've got problems, but we've got solutions. And theory and empirical evidence suggest a strategy for higher education finance that's got three elements, which very much tie in with what we've heard from the other speakers. You pay for universities from a mix of taxpayer support and tuition fees. You make it possible for students to afford to pay those fees and to live through well-designed loans such that higher education is free at the point of use. And... To the extent that higher education, to some extent, pays for itself, that frees resources for interventions earlier in the system, which, where we've heard, is where the major impediments to access occur. And the reforms, the higher education reforms in 2006 adopted that strategy. They introduced... Variable fees of up to £3,000 a year. They had income-contingent loans to cover fees and living costs. And there was a continuation of earlier policies such as education maintenance allowances and AIM higher. So that's theory. Did it work? What happened? Well, what happened was that between 2006 and 2012, tuition fee income rose by 87% the number of grants and loans by 25%, the number of students by 20%, and most pleasing of all, the number of applicants from the most disadvantaged backgrounds went up by 53%. You would have thought fees and loans would harm access. They didn't. The drivers were the policies earlier in the system. So where should we be going in the future? And what I want to suggest are four building blocks that together attempt to follow Beveridge in having a strategic look at the system. And the first building block is to look at the whole of tertiary education holistically. First of all, in terms of the distributional effects, don't just look at the distribution of higher education finance, look at it across the whole of tertiary education. For example... Student loans, something like 80% of students won't repay in full. So student loans leak a lot, and people say, well, that's great, that's progressive. But it's roughly the top 50% of the distribution who go to university, so leaky loans benefit the bottom half of the top half of the distribution, but what about the 50% of people who never go to university? So one should look at the distribution across the whole of tertiary education. Um, One should have finance that covers the whole of tertiary education, and you should have delivery that allows flexibility. And I want to unpack uh, finance and delivery. Um, We've heard from Howard, and I completely agree, a common funding framework for all of tertiary education. Um, Howard was talking about a lifetime entitlement, a mixture of grant and loan entitlement that could cover any mix of higher education, non-degree tertiary education, apprenticeships and degree apprenticeships, uh, a well-designed loan to cover costs that are not covered by the grant element, and this is, as Howard said, very much of a piece with the Beveridge and Robin's principles. On delivery, you need far greater flexibility than the fly silos we currently have. Flexibility over the mix of higher further and technical education, uh, whereby an individual uh, accumulates skills, flexibility over the speed with which a person accumulates uh, skills, and flexibility over modes of delivery, face-to-face, distance learning, online, etc. What flexibility means in practice is things like the following, that someone who uses his or her uh, endowment to acquire a plumbing qualification but then later wants to turn that into a degree could do so by adding units in business studies or accounting or music or literature or whatever. Um, it should be possible to start accumulating credit in further education at a local technical college and finish it in higher education. It should be possible to do degrees more quickly in two years, as in Buckingham, or more slowly, uh, doing it part-time uh, over... A wide range of different time scales. And it should be possible to start part time and move to full time. And the fourth building block is greater emphasis on public spending on education earlier in the system, as uh, previous speakers have discussed. So I just want to end with a couple of sound bites. Why should the devil have all the best tunes? I remember Charles Clark, Secretary of State for Education, losing his temper at a student debate. If I were a real socialist, he said, I wouldn't spend a penny on higher education. I'd spend it all on nursery education. And there was a a quote from Cherie Blair in the Times Higher last month. Uh, She comes from a very poor background. She said, why should someone like my mother, who had to take a job in a fish and chip shop to support us after my father left us, pay for the university education of the children of someone like me as I am now? And that's exactly the point about looking at the whole of education, uh, the education system as a whole, not just obsessing about higher education. Let me leave it there. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, We've got uh, a bit over ten minutes um, for any questions um, or very brief comments, um, and I'll throw it open to the floor, and if you want to say who this is directed at, uh, uh, please say, but if you can keep it brief, sir. Uh, and there are microphones going around, and this is being recorded, so you can hear it all again. Uh,
5: Hello, Louis Quaffé from WonKey. You all work in higher education, why are you all arguing to spend more money elsewhere? <laughs> um, let's take a,
0: a few other uh, questions uh, back Back there, please. Um, and, and and the lady in the middle there. Uh, let's take these two together, and uh, and then. We'll Hi. Uh, thanks for thanks for the talk. This is directed at um, all the speakers. Um, We've spoken a lot tonight about policy, um, but not as much about um, culture within schools. It strikes me that to make education more effective for everyone, we need to start thinking about the culture of education and teaching, which seems stuck in the uh, industrial era in and, and when uh, schools were founded. So things like having children um, in classes based on when they were born in their year group rather than on their ability, for example... Um, it seems to me that there are a lot of other countries like Finland um, have more creative ideas about how to change education system and make it fit for the 21st century. Okay. Uh, go um, ahead.
2: I wanted to ask um, if the, the, sort of
3: the C- giant... Can of you it, switch that
0: on or hold it closer?
2: If the, the giant of ignorance is possibly a lot to do with you can offer as much education as you want and put as much money into it, but a lot of people reject the, you know, the benefit of it and the, don't they don't want to stay involved with it no matter what you what you put on offer for them
0: sorry you're, you're saying that a lot of people just don't want to be involved in education did I, I hear well, that the, right?
2: that maybe that there needs to be targeting with regard to people that are choose towards education and keeping them involved and and sort of nourishing a love of learning that a lot of kids just don't they aren't given by their families
0: okay let's take those out um, are all these, are all of you uh, disinterested and uh, selfless in um, not wishing to put more money into higher education? Is that a uh, uh, fair interpretation? Yeah,
4: How can I, can I, shall I respond to that? <laughs> well, I suppose I began uh, I entered teaching in higher education because I cared above all about poverty, I saw. That's um, so why I ended up having done other things for first of all, in the Social Policy Department. And what drove me throughout was a concern about the most disadvantaged kids I saw in parts of the country I used to visit. Uh, and I tried to explain why, in the end, thinking about who was receiving the benefits of higher education, it seemed to me there was a, an ethical problem that had to be faced. Um sorry. And if that meant uh, my career might be a little less uh, well-paid in higher education, well, come so be it, really.
5: I mean, there's, I mean there, there's two arguments. There is a moral argument for saying higher education shouldn't gobble up its fair share, but there's also an efficiency argument. I mean, countries can't afford to waste talent. That's always been true, but in today's knowledge society, it's more true than ever. So you could say, even if you don't care about the distributional aspects just in terms of national productivity I mean we we saw from sort of uh, several of the graphs our productivity is way behind that of several other uh, of of, of other European countries and getting our investment in human capital right is an important part of that so if that means uh, somewhat less for higher education then so be it.
0: Let's go on to the question about the culture. Is, is it all too uniform and rigid and um, set in uh, 19th century uh, um, uh, Dickensian structures? Kitty, Kitty,
1: yeah, well, I think there's something in... I mean, I think... I'm not so sure about Dickensian structures, but I think that certainly in recent years, the, it seems to me the curriculum is getting narrower and narrower and focusing more it's more on what are seen as uh, academic skills, maths and science and um, English, um, and squeezing out other aspects of the curriculum, which are really important, like music and art. And uh, and, and I think that that also relates perhaps to, to the other point about how we keep people engaged in education. And I think... There is a problem that if, it, if there's, a, there's this sort of narrow academic route that leads to higher education, that's not going to be for everybody. There's not very much attractive in terms of vocational skills, uh, vocational education available, and there's, nothing, there's not that much that's nurturing other people's skills and talents in education. So I think if we, had a bro- if we, we need to broaden the curriculum again in order to maybe keep people more engaged. Uh, I'd go along with that as well. Uh, I think there's an enormous focus on league
2: tables and schools having to justify their existence. Uh, they're under threat of uh, being made into academies and so on if their results don't actually constantly increase. And, and I think there's a lot to be learned from what happens elsewhere. And I think Finland is a, a, a really interesting example, so I think there's more that can be learned on that.
0: And on uh, failure to nourish children's interests and, and, and children... Um, getting detached from the education system. As understood, the third question, Sandra, are you?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's, there's some truth in that about about um, sometimes people, parents having low aspirations and um, and ch- children having low aspirations about about education. Um, maybe because the they're they're in schools. Um, they never had a good experience themselves, so they've never really seen the benefit of what education can do, and they don't have much confidence in themselves. So uh, I think that's a sort of separate issue, but I'm sure that's, that's pretty important, trying to address that, trying to address the sense of hope that education should, should give you, and, and trying to inspire people uh, as well is important.
0: Uh, there are a couple of very quick questions, but we've got to stop, I'm afraid, because there's an, a, a sp- something happening outside. Um, uh, um, uh, do you want to get a microphone over um, uh, over there and maybe in the middle and then we'll have to stop, I'm sorry. Time is short.
4: Um, this is a question for Professor Boa. Um,
1: does a well-designed student learning system still remain an efficient method of funding if it's uh, initially underwritten by the government only to be sold at a huge discount to to the private sector as was recently done with the securitization?
5: Sorry, could you shout out the last bit of your question?
1: Does, does Does the student loan still remain an efficient method of financing if initially originated by the government and then subsequently sold at a huge discount to the private market?
0: Very and
3: just to keep it short, uh, just two questions. The first one and is one. about um so how do
0: you think about like the merit- uh, meritocracy plays a role in terms of like education and like widening or like um, social mobility and I want to ask the second question which is
3: uh, so for the vocational training um, so how do you think like the job market can really target like or like accommodate this group of people and whether the disadvantaged group people that they after they get a the vocational training they can really improve their upper social mobility because no, the job okay, market we
0: got to we, leave it there um sorry. Could you like to take the last bit of...
3: um, on the, the vocational training? How can employers? How can employers? Uh, what's the? <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you haven't got an employer, you
4: don't know. Uh, well, uh, 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 yeah. Uh, yes.
3: Uh, y- 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 yeah. Um. I mean, the the problem with. Not all of the vocational tra- r- routes do lead to um, higher payoffs in the labour market. So, I mean, one of the, 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 the challenges going ahead about trying to reform uh, vocational technical education is that you want to involve more employers more in the design of that, it's to make sure that they do value what comes out and they know about what's coming out of the education system. Um, a, a problem can be when you go down too far down that road because, and they let employers do everything because they have their own interests and they're not neutral either. So it's really quite difficult about how you, you do all this.
0: Look, I'm, I'm, really, I'm going to ask uh, Nick Bart if you could have a word with the uh, questioner about loans but um, the stewards uh, uh, have instructed me and they will remove me if I don't carry this out that we've, we've got to finish. Um, I, I just want to very quickly thank you all for coming Thank all the speakers. Tell you that there's a uh, you can clap in a minute. Um, and that the, the, the LSE Research Competition Prize is giving, the award ceremony is going to happen uh, in a couple of minutes outside. And you can uh, look at the exhibition uh, and talk to the shortlisted students and staff who took part in the uh, um, competition. But uh, thank you all, for, uh, and thank the speakers.